invite you to open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. We've been for several weeks now considering an exposition of this short but very precious book. In chapter 1, we saw Jonah's commission and how he ran away and God reeled him in. Chapter 2, we saw Jonah's prayer in which he has, God has gracious dealings with him. He struggles between fear and faith and ends up coming forth from his salty entombment, confessing that salvation is from the Lord. And then we began studying Jonah chapter 3, Jonah's recommission. We saw his return to his commission in verses 1 through 3. We saw God's renewed charge and his restored prophet, and we considered the God of second chances. And then we looked at the crucial tests that Jonah faced in returning to his commission in verses 2 through 4. His duty to wait for his, God's message tested his obedience to God, and that Jonah had a duty to preach to a wicked audience, and that tested his confidence in God. And then we saw Jonah's duty to pre preach a severe message tested his witness for God. And then in verses 4 through 9, we saw Jonah's recommission, the Ninevites' response to his preaching. We saw that they believed in God according to Jonah's word. And then we contemplated some practical lessons flowing from the Ninevites' believing and a repenting response to Jonah's word. Now, this morning, we come to consider verse 10. But let's read verse 10 in its context. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call earnestly on God that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent 
and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. Well, this morning we come to consider from verse 10, Nineveh's repenting and God's relenting. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Well, brethren, this morning, before coming to a few words of concluding application, we're going to look at two points. We're going to look at what God saw, and we're going to look at what God did. What God saw, he beheld Nineveh's repentance, and what God did, he relented of his promised punishment. Let's once again seek God's face. Our Father, we were reminded, even this morning, from the opening verse of the third chapter of James, let not many become teachers, for they shall incur a stricter judgment. We saw how easily our tongues may, may wag and do evil. We've seen that wisdom is from on high, it's first pure and peaceable. And we pray, our Father, that we would have wisdom from on high. I would have wisdom to use my tongue in a way that plainly preaches the truth and exalts your glorious name, and that we would have ears to hear. We would be good Bereans. We would go to the scriptures. We would test what is even said from this pulpit by the mouth of a mere man to see if it squares with what the Spirit has inspired in holy writ. And if indeed we go to the scriptures and find these things to be so, we pray that we would rejoice in them and you would write them upon our hearts and that we would live in light of them to your glory and for our happiness for time and for eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What God saw, he beheld Nineveh's repentance. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he declared that he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, as we look at what God saw, what he saw of, of their heart and their changed life, he beheld their repentance. Let's notice a few things. Let's notice three things about what God beheld. First of all, Notice the evangelical reasons for Nineveh's repentance. Notice that the guilty Ninevites, they believed in God through the preaching of Jonah. They feared God's judgment. They showed faith in the Lord and they repented of their sin. Notice then first, the Ninevites heard God's messenger. They didn't try to justify their sins. They didn't argue with Jonah. They didn't excuse their wickedness or their brutality. They didn't try to talk God out of overthrowing the city with arguments of their supposed goodness. Instead, they owned their sin and guilt and God's righteous judgment. 
And that's what everyone will do when they believe God. They take God at his word. And notice, secondly, the king and people heeded God's message. They, they didn't simply entertain these things. Well, yeah, these things are probably true. No, they, nor did they resign themselves to God's inevitable judgment, knowing that they deserved to be overthrown as wicked men and women. They did what every believing, broken-hearted person will do when they recognized their sin and what that required of them from the hand of God. They changed their lives. They left their sin. But they didn't stop with believing in God and obeying God's message. They believed, they obeyed, they heard, they heeded. Notice thirdly, they hoped for God's mercy. They hoped for God's mercy. They added hope to their faith and repentance. You see, they didn't simply wait looking at their watches and observing their calendars, waiting for their doom to come in 40 days. They threw themselves before the feet of God and pleaded for themselves and their neighbors that God would show mercy. Yes, we are in the 11th hour of our our lives. We deserve this doom that God has pronounced upon us through the ministry of this strange prophet. No, they were like the guilty steward. In Jesus' parable, who pleaded with his master to show him clemency. But unlike that bankrupt steward, they made no promise to make good on their debt. We don't have anything to give, nothing in our hands. No, they did what spiritually bankrupt, damned and doomed sinners must do. They pleaded the Lord's undeserved mercy. Verse 9, who knows... God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. And so they heard God's messenger, they heeded God's message, and they hoped for God's mercy. Those are the evangelical reasons for Nineveh's repentance. Notice, secondly here, the plain evidences of Nineveh's repentance. First, the Ninevites demonstrated their repentance with telling rituals appropriate for those people. Their voluntary fasting and humiliation symbolized their brokenness for their sin. And the king himself sat down publicly on ashes, testifying to his abasement for his wickedness. He takes off his royal robes, dons sackcloth, and then sits down in ashes to show his absolute humiliation before God. Secondly, the king pronounced a universal edict commanding moral reformation from all the Ninevites. Verse 8, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. In a previous message, we saw the kind of people that the Ninevites were. They were a brutal people. They were like many Middle Easterners even today, whose religion is a license to show brutality to their fellow men. But each turned from his characteristic sin, from his greediness or immorality or lying, his thievery, his murder. They were a wicked and brutal people. 
Now contrast these pleading Ninevehs with prayerless Jonah when he was confronted by the captain earlier in that storm-tossed ship. He's down sleeping and below the captain goes down and rouses him and he says, get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. We've called on our gods. They haven't rescued us. Call on your God and maybe he'll deliver us. And these Ninevites, they, they did the same thing. They, they cast off their heathen gods like these sailors did. They cast off all hope of deliverance from their imaginary gods. Instead, they hoped against hope that Jonah's God that had pronounced punishment against them would be so concerned for them that they wouldn't perish. They sought the mercy of the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. In other words, they sought Jonah's God. They sought the God of the Bible. They sought the one true and living God. They sought the only God that there is. So they called earnestly upon Jehovah. Fourth, these violent and wicked Ninevites demonstrated true repentance. You see, their repentance went beyond these outward rituals of fasting and donning sackcloth and sitting on ashes. We can easily do those things and not live a changed life. It involved more than a bald acknowledgement that the Lord is God. It, it went beyond conviction and sorrow for sin. Their faith and repentance demonstrated itself in changed lives. The power of God that saves changes lives. Old things pass away. Behold, new things come. We're not what we once were, what we are. We are by the grace of God. And so they heeded the king's command for each of them to turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. And we read that they turned from their wicked way here in verse 10. And brethren, we behold here that nothing less than a universal and comprehensive turning from of these wretched pagans from a life of violence and wickedness to a life of moral uprightness, that's what repentance involves for those that lived in Jonah's day and for those that live in our day. This happens wherever the gospel takes root in a formerly pagan culture. Read the missionary biographies. Read of John Payton. He goes to, to the New Hebrides. He's, he's amongst cannibals. And he preaches and the people listen and God performs a, a marvelous providence and he brings water out of the ground. They couldn't get that water. Jehovah brings that water and they turn from their wicked way and serve the living and true God. But whether the Ninevites' repentance was thoroughly evangelical and brought lasting change, we'll, we'll consider in a later message. But this is as much as we need to know for now. Notice thirdly, very briefly, the happy consequence of Nineveh's repentance. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared that he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The clock ticked, the calendar switched from one month to the next, 
the day came, that 40th day, and God did not visit them with judgment. He heard their prayers. So God abandoned His promised punishment. He turned away His terrible wrath from the repentant city. No fire came down from heaven. No flood came up from the earth. No earthquake, no invasion from a foreign army. They were delivered from the wrath to come. So that's what God saw. He beheld men of His repentance. Notice, secondly, what God did. He relented of His promised punishment. Then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. Notice three things. First of all, the meaning of God's relenting. It's very plain, but it's very powerful. God relented. God wrote, My mercy prevails across the faith, face of the formerly doomed city. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And at day 41, the people rejoiced, no doubt. To help us understand the greatness of God's mercy in delivering repentant Nineveh from destruction, let us contrast and compare the destruction he did not inflict upon Nineveh with his overthrow of Sodom and the cities of the plain. First of all, God regarded both as exceedingly wicked cities. In fact, he came down to look at Sodom. He could see it from heaven, but he went down to, to see the report that had reached his ears. He knew what was going on in Nineveh as well as what was going on in Sodom. But God regarded both of these as exceedingly wicked cities. Neither deserved mercy. But he sent no prophet to warn Sodom, as he did to Nineveh. And though righteous Lot dwelt in Sodom, and Peter says that he was vexed with her gross sin day after day, at best he proved to be an ineffective witness to his neighbors, and even to his own family, his sons-in-law thought he was kidding, when he said, we need to get up and get out of here, fire's going to fall. But God dispatched Jonah to the wicked Assyrian city with a message of certain judgment. God, without warning, utterly destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. God's relented overthrow of Nineveh, He visited with righteous vengeance upon Sodom and the cities of the plain. Brethren, we're reminded that all sin deserves God's judgment. He never gives men what they don't deserve except in the way of grace. But in the way of justice, He always gives men what they deserve. That God has mercy on some persons and peoples is due not to their desert, but to His good pleasure. None of us deserve God's mercy. We need to get that into our heads. Further, Jonah uses the same word to describe the threatened judgment and destruction of Nineveh as Moses uses of the conflagration that destroyed Sodom and her sister cities. It's the word overthrow. 
Genesis 19 and verse 25. And he, that is God, overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. You see, God rained hell from heaven and destroyed every living thing. Then Jonah, verse 4, began to go through the city's one-day walk, and he cried out and said in the ears of those that knew of Sodom's destruction, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Brethren, it was from this kind of total destruction that God spared the penitent Ninevites. And whether raining fire from heaven or visiting the city with some kind of what we would call a natural catastrophe or destruction from an invading army, we don't know. But he delivered the city of Nineveh. And here's the point. Jesus thrust Sodom and Nineveh before our attention to arrest us and to call us to consider our own doom if we do not respond to the, in faith to the preaching of the gospel. We are of all people most privileged. Sodom didn't have a Bible. Nineveh didn't have a Bible. We have a Bible. We can't say, we didn't know. Jesus said the, re the residents of Sodom would have repented had they had such a preacher. Nineveh had such a preacher and they repented. The question we have to ask ourselves is, will it be more tolerable for Sodom than for us on the judgment day? And will the Ninevites rise up and condemn us on that terrible day because we did not believe, believe the preaching of a greater than Jonah, even the Lord Jesus Christ? So that's God's relenting. Notice the motives behind God's relenting. Now, we don't always know precisely why God does what He does. It is His sovereign prerogative to conceal His divine design. But we un must understand that God never does anything without a reason. He doesn't act willy-nilly. He's not knee-jerk like we are. And what we know for sure is this. All that he does, he does to advance his glory in the earth. Yet much mystery surrounds God's actions, let alone his motives. And brethren, to dogmatically discern the thoughts and intentions of God's infinite and ineffable heart is to be guilty of criminal arrogance and impiety. To think we can figure out God? A chastened Job, who was the most righteous man of his days. A chastened Job, who at times had erred in his thinking. He, he thought he had God figured out, and he later retracted of his former pontifications, and he repented in dust and ashes before God. And when God sorted him out, he confessed that he had spoken foolishly and unadvisedly with his lips, 
of things far above his reach, even of God's infinite and sovereign majesty and of his deep and unsearchable counsels and providence, to quote Matthew Poole. Job 42 and verse 3. Job puts into his mouth words that God had leveled against him. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Here the penitent patriarch is putting God's words back in his mouth in in his repentance. Therefore I have declared things which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Job said, I was talking through my hat. I spoke of things that I didn't understand, and I pontificated about God, and He has weighed me in the balances and showed my wisdom to be wanting. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, who is one with the Father when contemplating God's marvelous plan of salvation, especially His election and His reprobation, uttered in holy adoration and wonder what we read in Matthew 11 and verse 25. I praise Thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that Thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent, and didst reveal them to babes. It's of the king's glory to hide things from men. Now, brethren, if we would not be guilty of sinful irreverence and impudence, we must tread softly and go no further than Scripture allows in discerning why God does what He does. Where we cannot determine from a text of Scripture God's motives behind His dealings with men, we must remain mum. But I suggest that we may safely and confidently, yet carefully, bring the biblical record of God's righteous and gracious character to bear on questions of His conduct with men. Yet even then we must bow humbly before God. Remember His telling statement to the prophet that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways or your ways my ways. For as, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Brother, this much we know for certain. God's conduct will never contradict his character. As God is, so He does. And upon this rock we may and we must stand. It is not insignificant that this word came to Isaiah from God, informing him of his earnest exhortation to save sinners. That His way of salvation is far above us. We can't understand it after urging them to seek the Lord while He may be found, call upon Him while He is near, let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and He will have compassion on him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. Paul put it this way, His grace is greater than all our sin. So when we attempt to plumb the infinite depths of God's gracious heart, 
we may be assured that we are on safe ground knowing that though there is none righteous, that none seeketh after God, but that there is a righteous God that seeks sinners. Brethren, this is the pole star shining ever bright in the gracious constellation of God's perfections. This is the God who called off his promised overthrow of Nineveh as he witnessed them turning from their wicked way and calling upon him who is mighty to save. So why did God cancel his promised overthrow of Nineveh? Let's begin with what we know about God. First, we know that God's motive in showing mercy to guilty Ninevites was not because of anything good he found in them. No, he found just the opposite. But you say, well, didn't they believe and repent of their wickedness and brutality? Yes, they did. But we know from the New Testament that both saving faith and repentance is the gift of God. These he granted to the Ninevites. But known only to God is why he granted them these graces, when he didn't give those graces to the Sodomites. You see, Jehovah is a God of sovereign mercy. He doesn't give all men what we all deserve, but he chooses to give some what we don't deserve, saving the Ninevites while destroying the Sodomites. Neither deserved to be spared from God's wrath. You see, brethren, God's salvation always displays his sovereign good pleasure. His unbounded grace is undeserved mercy and his unmerited kindness. His wrath always displays His perfect justice, giving to each man what he deserves. But sometimes He turns away His wrath to show mercy. And that is why grace is always amazing and salvation such an astounding, unexpected blessing. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9, Paul speaks of this God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Second, we know that God's motive in sparing the guilty Ninevites was founded upon His gracious character that delights in showing mercy rather than in exacting and executing judgment. You see, judgment... Isaiah says is his strange, is his extraordinary work. As Jeremiah viewed the smoking rubble of a once glorious city, the city of Jerusalem, he pondered aloud, Lamentations 3 and verse 33, for he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. Rather, God himself states unequivocally, that he takes no pleasure in punishing sinners, but rather in passing by and not judging those who repent and turn from their sin. Ezekiel 33 and verse 11, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? 
Ezekiel 18, verses 23 and 32. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? He asks the question, then he answers it. Rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. Third, we know that God's motive in saving the Ninevites was to exalt His glorious name. God has a holy self-interest in advancing His own glory. That's why it's a sin for us to, to seek glory that belongs only to God. He won't share it with another. But it's only right for Him to seek, to exalt it in the eyes of men and angels. And God's glory is advanced when He graciously saves wicked people like you and me. So God promised captive Judah in Babylon. Ezekiel 20 and verse 44. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake. Not according to your evil ways or according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. All of his dealings, you see, are to advance the glory of his name, whether in punishment or in, in showing mercy. Brethren, God is glorified when his saving name is extended throughout the earth. That should always be the chief purpose of missions. The secondary purpose is to save sinners, that it might serve the primary purpose that God's name would be hallowed in the earth. That the means is to that end. And through Jonah, Jehovah's fame was extended beyond Israel to pagan Nineveh, saving undeserved and hell-deserving pagans, magnifies God's saving name. This same God seeks to exalt His glorious name in saving you, dear sinner friend, to save you, to save me. Jonah personally testified to God's saving mercy. He did so from drowning. God delivered him from Drowning, and he did so in a most unusual way, swallowing him with a great fish. And then he showed mercy as well as he delivered him back to his promised commission and restored him to preaching of the Word of God. But notice that Jonah believed that God could change and would change his mind. Verse 2 of chapter 4. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? When you first called me when I was in Gath Hefer and you commanded me to go to, to Nineveh, I was afraid that this might happen. I was still in my own country in order to forestall this, what I've seen here, in you relenting of your punishment, I fled to Tarshish. Notice, for I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. 
I know that you're this kind of a God. That's why I hot-footed it toward Tarshish. Notice, thirdly, the seeming irreconcilable problem of God's relenting. But I hear you saying, Pastor Steve, God warned Nineveh of their certain overthrow in 40 days and then relented. How can this be? Doesn't the Bible teach that the living God is immutable? That is, that He does not change? Yes, it surely does, and this is gloriously true. But I dare say it's consistent with what we read in the book of Jonah. So let us ponder the problem that God apparently broke His promise. Let us feel something of the weight of this apparent problem. And I suggest to you that this problem takes us to the limit of our knowledge of God, to the fence that separates the things that are revealed about God that belong to us and the secret things of God that belong only to Him. Again, we must view God's conduct through the lens of His character. And so let's start with what we know about God. First, let us be certain that God's character does not and cannot undergo any change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And of this truth, the Scriptures speak unequivocally. Numbers 23 and verse 19. Balaam knew this. God is not man that he should lie, nor the Son of Man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? He's saying this to Balak. I'm going to speak what God says. This is the God I represent. Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? You wanted me to curse? God's put words in my mouth to bless. I can't change that. Malachi 3 and verse 6. What a comforting word to God's people. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you're not consumed. You're, you're not consumed. This should be a word to everyone who struggles with assurance of salvation. The God who saved you is not going to turn away from you. He's not going to revoke your title to heaven. He's not going to remove the blessing of the blood of Christ from you. He's not going to take His Holy Spirit from you. Perish the thought. Such thoughts are blasphemy. 1 Samuel 15, 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. We change our minds all the time. God doesn't change his mind. God himself doesn't change. A change in his character would suggest that he is not perfect. If he used to change his mind, could he be better? Change his mind? Be no, he's absolutely the same always. The triune Jehovah is the great I Am, eternally, unchangeably perfect. He always is what He always was, and what He always was and is, He will always ever be. He's not in the process of becoming. He is, period. To deny that God is immutable is to deny that He is God. 
Further, nothing in creation can alter the Creator. Instead, He acts and we react. Our changes affect no change in God. Even in His responses to man, He undergoes no change. What appears as a change in God's dealings signifies no alteration in His unchangeable character. Second, all that happens in this world happens as the outworking of God's fixed eternal decree. This includes the believing and penitent response of the Ninevites to Jonah's preaching. Brethren, this God knew before dispatching Jonah, and Jonah had some idea that it might happen. This God knew before dispatching Jonah to the wicked city. Why? Because he determined their faith and their repentance before the creation of the world. God wasn't surprised at their repentance. He ordered it from eternity. Jehovah is the one whom Paul says in Ephesians 1 and verse 11, who works all things after the counsel of his own will. And that's in the context of his predestination. Thirdly, and here's the conundrum. Yet the Bible in many places, especially in the Old Testament, states that God repents or relents or changes his mind. Well, how can this be? Well, I wish to briefly survey the data on this subject, which is considerable, by having us notice that God is free to relent or change His mind on the condition of men's repentance or their prayer or their obedience. Remember, all of which was determined in eternity. First of all, God changed His mind and did not destroy rebellious Israel in response to Moses' prayer. You remember the incident of the golden calf. Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 32, verses 12 and 14. And here Moses is concerned about God's glory and, and what people are going to say if he destroys his people out there in the desert. You brought them out there to kill him. Why should the Egyptians speak saying, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy burning anger and change thy mind about doing harm to thy people. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Further, God changed his mind and called off devouring locusts in response to Amos' prayer. Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 6. Thus the Lord showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm. When the spring crop began to sprout, and behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. In other words, he got his taxes. Now the people are going to suffer. And it came about when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land that I said, Lord God, please pardon. Can Jacob, how can Jacob stand for he is small? Verse 3, the Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Verse 6, the Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. Furthermore, God promises to change his mind 
whether to punish or whether to bless condition upon men's response to his word. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 10. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I planned to bring on it. Or at another moment... I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. In other words, to bring blessing to it. Verse 10, if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. So that sword cuts two directions. If he, pro if he promises to, to bring judgment upon them, they repent. He holds back his sword. If he promises to give blessing, and they don't, they do evil, he thrusts the sword. Furthermore, God will change his planned response, conditioned upon men's change of mind. Zechariah 8, verses 14 and 15. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Just as I purposed to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I have not relented. I warned them. They didn't. They didn't uh, heed my warning. He didn't relent. So I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. I kept my word in punishing them. I promised to do you good. I punished. I promised to do good. I will believe. Do not fear. Jameson Fawcett, Brown commentators, say, I did not change my purpose because they did not change their mind. 2 Chronicles 36, 16. With the obstinate, God shows himself obstinate. Psalm 18, 26. If the threatened punishment has been so unchangeably inflicted, much more will God surely give the promised blessing, which is so much more consonant with His nature. Jeremiah 31, 28. Dear ones, Jonah saw no inconsistency between God's pronouncement of judgment upon Nineveh he preached it powerfully, chapter 3 and verse 4. And his subsequent mercy to them. He knew that if they relented, God would relent. In fact, as we will see next time, and even as we saw before, he suspected that God just might reverse his plan and show them mercy, which he did. So consider concluding le lessons. I appreciate your patience. Three things. First of all, that God relented from overthrowing Nineveh teaches us that no sinner should despair, but rather believe in Christ, repent of their sin, and plead for God's mercy. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that men repent, turn and live, that's the word, to each one of us. Brethren, if God was willing to save Ninevites, notorious in their day for their flagrant sins, He's willing to save you. 
Your sins shouldn't keep you from God. Rather, they should drive you to Him. So the hymn writer says, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, He is able, He is able, He is willing, doubt no more. Keep in mind that your days are numbered. Don't put off going to Christ until a more convenient day. Behold, now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. The day of grace is passing fast. Eternal justice waits. Get right with God now. Seek Jesus and be saved. Secondly, be sure that all who experience God's saving mercy will lead a changed life. God's grace radically altered the lives of these believing Ninevites. They weren't the same people after believing Jonah's message and acting upon it. I suggest to you that this radical change likely made them the eighth wonder of the world. Have you heard what happened to Nineveh? God turned that city upside down, not in judgment, but in mercy. You've heard about them. They're famous. They're infamous for their wickedness. Go visit them now. You don't have to worry about somebody stealing your wallet as you walk down the street or some prostitute hiking her skirt when you walk by. You won't see that. So if you turn to Christ, God will make you a wonder to all that know you. In fact, you'll be a wonder to yourself. Think of the checkered Corinthians, who were notorious sinners in the first century. You, re you read the litany of their characteristic sins in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. It'll make you blush. The hair stand up on the back of your neck. You'll find conviction of your own sin there. What does Paul say immediately following? And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. What a testimony these believing Corinthians had in that wicked, perverse, and godless society in which they lived. Brother, we're to be lights in this dark world. We're to be the salt of the earth. Thirdly and finally, let us adore the God who mercifully saves all who trust in Jesus and turn from their sin to lead a holy life. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, we were despicably dirty, depraved people, Paul says. And we were by nature children of wrath. It was marked out for us. It's the kind of lives that we live, begging the fire to fall. Children of wrath, even as the rest. We don't reckon ourselves any better than they. But God, but God made the difference, you see. Being rich in mercy, 
because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Brother, let us not challenge God who justly destroyed sinful Sodom and yet mercifully spared wicked Nineveh. Let us bow before our sovereign Savior who delivers wretched, undeserving sinners like you and me from deserved wrath and makes us children of grace. Romans 9. Well, that's a strange text to go to. Oh, but it fits. Verse 18, So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Yet you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? That's an insolent question in the light of God's sovereign authority to do as he will with what is his own. The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why do you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have right over the clay to make from the same lump our fallen, wicked, Adamic, hell-deserving humanity? To make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so in order that He might make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy. From that same group, He chose some to be vessels of mercy, not because of anything in them, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called not only from among Jews, but also from among Gentiles, Ninevites. So, brethren, the great question to be answered is not why does God save some sinners and leave others to justly perish in their sins? Brethren, none of us, nobody deserves to be saved. The great question each of us must answer is simple. Let's take our eyes off of other people and let's put it upon ourselves. The question we have to ask, am I saved? Have I experienced this great transformation? Jesus came to save sinners. Let me ask you, are you saved? Trust in God the God of amazing grace. And He promises unequivocally to save you. He spilled His Son's blood to prove that He loves and He sent Jesus into this world to save sinners. Let's pray. Our Father, we don't pretend to know everything that is true of you, even from the Word of God, let alone what you haven't revealed of yourself. But Lord, what we do know, we know is enough for us to see our dress, desperate and dreadful condition. And we plead with you to give us feet of faith and repentance, to flee from the wrath to come, 
and to lay hold of Jesus Christ, indeed, even to believe upon him whom to know is life eternal? So, Lord, do that delightful work. And we pray that you would exalt your grace by saving sinners this day in this room, wherever the gospel is preached, as the sun traces its circuit across this earth. Oh, would the Lord Jesus go forth conquering and to conquer that he would slay the enmity in men's hearts, and he would take those who were his enemies and make them his friends, and he would populate his kingdom with thousands of sinners this day. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.